Welcome to Church 213. We're so glad that you're tuning into our summer series titled On Your Mark. As we go through the book of Mark, equipping you on how to run strong this summer for Christ, we pray this message impacts you where you're at and where you're going this summer. Thanks for listening. How many of y'all are glad to be here today? All right, me too. Uh, my name's Blake, Blake Thomas. Uh, a lot of y'all that I already know, but we've, this is kind of like our second church home, my wife Melissa and our 19 million girls that we have. Um, we've been here several times, but, but anyway, I'm, I'm definitely humbled that Ryan would ask me to stand up here uh, and preach in his place while he's off gallivanting in Darien, Georgia, but uh, he's a good friend of mine. We've been good friends for a long time. Uh, I've watched how God has grown him and, and used him, and uh, when he was, gosh, 14 years ago, uh, when he was an interim, intern at, at Shiloh, I asked him, I was like, so you, you think you're going to be preaching one day? No, 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 nah, God didn't call me to preach, uh-uh, nope. He said, I am strictly recreation ministry. Uh, that's what I went to school for. You know, he went to UGA, and, and he was studying athletics and all these things. And, and he was good in the rec ministry. He was very good. And then the next thing you know, he's in the children's ministry. And uh, I said, man, I thought you said you weren't going to preach. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to preach to children. Preach to children, and that's it. Well, obviously, we see where, where he's at now. And, uh, but that shows you what happens when God takes a hold of our lives, and we're obedient to answer his call. And you guys are, without a doubt, blessed to have an awesome pastor. Um, he's a great guy, good friend of mine. And I know the things that he goes through, uh, the, the struggles that he goes through, the joy that he goes through, and the worry that he goes through for all you guys as being your pastor because I know him outside of church. You know, we hunt, we fish, we do all these things together. And he'll call me every now and then. And, and he doesn't tell me, he don't tell me your business, so don't worry about that. But just pray for, you know, a young couple in our church. Pray for a, a man in our church, one in our church, whatever it may be. But he loves y'all uh, very much. And uh, so y'all are definitely blessed. Take your Bibles today. And I'm going to stay with uh, the theme that Ryan's going with this summer is on your mark. So we're going to still be in the book of Mark. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12. I'm going to make it as far as I can. Uh, I don't know if I'll make it through the entire chapter. But Mark chapter 12, and if you'll stand, if you're physically able to, for, in the honor of the reading of God's holy word, I want to go ahead and read 1 through 12. If you're there, say, I am. Right. Does that sound familiar? All right. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came... He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him and they beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. 
But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and that's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. You may be seated. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you that we live in a place where we can freely open it, we can freely read it, and we can freely proclaim and sing it. And Lord, I just pray today as, as we read your word, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, just, just give us understanding in these truths that were already said in it long ago. And I pray that you would just bring it afresh or new to us today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this parable is what I want to key in on today. But I'm not, at the beginning of this, I'm not going to tell you too much about it. I want to kind of get to the end first. But there's a couple of things that you need to know. One, this parable cut them. All right, it cut them. It made them mad. Where did that little piece of paper go that I had? But it cut them. I got to get this gum out of my mouth, I'm sorry. And it made them mad. But why did it make them mad? That's the question we got to ask ourselves. There's a reason it made them mad. Well, here's the thing. Parables, historically, by Christ, were given, they were obscure. Um, They were not for leaders to understand. The parables were written so that those who would come to Christ would understand. They were a way of kind of doing an underground church type thing. They were a way of telling people about who he was, but only those certain ones were going to understand him. The leaders, they never understood him. And he did this for a reason. But this parable, this parable, he wanted the leaders to understand. The leaders that we're talking about is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin consisted of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. They called them Sadducees. Y'all know why they called them Sadducees? Because they're sad, you see. That was whatever. Oh, and I got a new Bible. I got a new Bible this week. I'm excited about it. The one that, this one though, I've checked every page and there's not a picture anywhere in it. So, I don't know. But anyway, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version today. Uh, that's that's my favorite one. And uh, But anyways, but we look. Why did this parable cut them? Why did it? And I'm going to get back to that. But the second point, they tried to cut him. They tried to cut him. This is starting in verse 13. It says, They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? See, what they were trying to do, they're sending Pharisees, all right, who were leaders in the Sanhedrin, they're in the Sanhedrin, and they're sending Herodians. The Herodians were those of Herod. They were, they were, they were Jews in a sense, but they were, it was a weak, they were weak Jews. I don't know how to really describe it, but political. This is the best way to describe that. So they're trying to catch him politically. They're trying to get him to say something against Caesar. They're trying to, I mean, they have been trying. They don't like the dude. They don't like Christ at all. And the only thing that the Herodians and the Pharisees shared in common was their hatred for Christ. 
Anything else, they didn't share in common. They didn't like each other. They didn't get along. But they united in this cause to try to catch Christ because they knew, they, they know that the things that he's teaching is causing a difference. See, here's the thing. When any of us proclaim Christ, no matter where we're at, it's going to make a difference. It's going to make a difference. When people realize who Jesus is, and they realize what he did on that cross, they realize why he came, it's going to make a difference. So they were seeing people, they were seeing an uprising, followers of Christ, and they didn't like it. They didn't like it because it took them off the pedestal. It took the attention away from them. See, these were religious men, religious men. They were all about what they were wearing. They were all about the acts that they were doing. And there is no way that they are going to set the fact that this teacher from Nazareth, Galilee, is the Messiah. There's no way they're going to accept that. What they would have thought was, this guy's going to be in these fine robes, these fine linens. He was going to be a rich man in a monetary sense. He's going to be a rich man. But when they saw who he really was, you know, they saw that he was just a common man in their eyes. They wouldn't accept it. So they're trying to find a way to get rid of him. But they're using flattery. In verse 14, when they came to him, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but teach the way of God. What they're saying about him is true, but they're saying it in a smart aleck way. And they're saying it in a way of flattery. You know, that if, if he didn't have that 100% God in him, he may have been swayed by it. Us, we get swayed by those things. You know, what flattery does to us, well, thank you. You know, I, I, you know I, people, that flattery, so then people can say whatever they want to say, get us to agree to whatever we want to agree to, whatever they want us to agree to. That's what they're trying to do. But what they're failing to see is what he's been saying all along, and that's, that he is God in the flesh. That's what they're failing to see. But they said, should we pay these taxes or not? And he said in verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. A denarius is like, it's a coin that at that time was worth about a day's pay. And this is what they had, this is what they were taxed yearly was the denarius. Could y'all imagine if, if today we were only taxed a day's wage? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, we're definitely not taxed that unless you're one of those that are off-gridders that don't pay taxes. But that would be amazing. But anyway, that, they, they brought it to him and he said, Whose is this? And they said, Caesar. It's Caesar's inscription. And he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The reason they marveled, because even the Pharisees themselves, half of them didn't even pay taxes because they disagreed with it. They believed that it was wrong. They believed that paying taxes was wrong. But he said, render to Caesars that are Caesars and God the things that are God. And what he's, what he's saying in that is twofold. One, pay your taxes. Two, that inscription, that money belongs to him, but I belong to God. Render the things that are God, God's. See, we count ourselves a, live, a living sacrifice. That money's not ours. The money that, that we have, we're here on earth, we're stewards of it. We're entrusted with it. So he's saying part of what we're entrusted to do is to give it. It's to give it to the government, let them do their job. Whether or not they do a good job is up to God. Because God is, God is king over them. He says he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, not us. Now we do vote to put them in the office, but ultimately it's God that's over them. Surrender to Caesar, Caesar's. 
but render to God God's. Now, the ones that are sad, you see, now they come along. Here's the kind of a background of the Sadducees. The Sadducees stuck to the Torah. They stuck to the book of the law. They did not believe in any way or shape or form that there would be a resurrection of the dead. They did not believe that that would happen. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in hell. They believed in what you could see, what you could touch, what you could feel. That was it. And they believed in the law. And they were very smart, very smart in the law. But in verse 18, and the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is true. This is written in, in, in the book of the law. There were seven brothers. I wonder if their last name was Compton. The first took away. Do y'all, do y'all know the Comptons? Yeah. All right. thought y'all might get a kick out of that. But there were seven brothers. And it said, the, the, the first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her. He died, leaving no offspring. The third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So in the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So they're trying to trick him because they know he's a teacher. They know he's a teacher of the law, rabbi. But he said to them, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? That's bold right there. He's already telling them they're wrong before he even tells them why. Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you knew No, neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. See, when when, when that Scripture was written, When God said to Moses in that burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, they had already gone on. You know, they had already gone on. He said, I'm the God of the living. So there is a resurrection. There is a resurrection, whether you believe it or not. How many of y'all in here believe there will be a resurrection? That's right. And God did that for us at first. He was the first one to be resurrected from the dead. But they tried to cut him. They tried to do it. And, and, And here's what's cool. All right, the scribes, they're the theologians. They're the ones that, man, they dig. They dig in the scriptures, and they know them. Um, they're the ones that, that can quote uh, a prophet, quote a law, whatever it may be, right off the top of their head because they stay in the Word. But here's the deal. Only one of them, verse 28, only one scribe came up to them and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema. This is like, uh, this would be like the Baptist Confession of Faith, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, or the Apostles' Creed. This, is, this was the Jewish creed. This was the Jewish creed. And it comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. But says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. 
And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. But here, here's one, something I want you all to really notice what Jesus said here. When you take your Bible, and you, you, you can do it later, do it now, whatever. But when you flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, the law that was stated is, the Shema that was stated was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Jesus added mind. Jesus added mind. He made it fourfold instead of threefold. And he added mind to one man, to the scribe, who was someone who was brilliant in the mind. And he's saying, you use that mind, you use that mind, that gift that God's given you, you use that for his glory also. So he's the one that said, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And then, the second is this, Oh, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. See, Jesus is keying in on this right here. God is one. He's letting them understand, I'm not here to tell you that I'm separate from God. He's fixing to break. He's already told the disciples, but he's fixing to let all these leaders know, I am God in the flesh. I'm God in the flesh. He's fixing to let them know the Trinity. The Trinity. And see, we, we believe the Trinity. If you believe the Trinity, how many of you in here believe the Trinity? If you don't, then you're probably in the wrong place. Um, you, you know, that's Jehovah's Witness, Mormons. There's a lot of different people that, that do not believe in the Trinity. But we can't know, we can't wrap our mind around it, but that does not mean that it's not true. The Scriptures speak it throughout. Old Testament and New. Old Testament and New, they speak that Jesus is God, was God and is God in the flesh. But he used the Torah. He used the Torah constantly because this is what these guys tried to use against him. You know, this is how they tried to cut him. But this scribe, this scribe was definitely uh, something was going on with him. Something God was working in his heart. And, it's, and he said to him, "You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there's none other beside him. And to love him, verse thirty-three, with all the heart." And with all the understanding, with all the strength, and love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than a whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And this was big for this guy to say. Because the burnt offerings and sacrifice, they were important at this time. We were singing a song just a minute ago and it was talking about the temple veil being torn. And see, the reason that veil was there was to keep the common folks out. Not even the common folks, but to keep some of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, to keep some of them out. The only one allowed inside the Holy of Holies was the high priest. He went in once a year, and he made sacrifice for everyone. Man, are y'all, aren't y'all glad that we don't have a man of flesh that has to make sacrifices for us constantly? See, that's, that's where truth, I almost said we, but that's where truth differs from what the, the, the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that we make our confession to a man sitting in a little box with a funny hat on. That is totally against the Word of God. Totally against the Word of God. There is no man on this earth that has the power to intercede on our behalf. No one does. The only one is Christ. Christ is the only one that has the power to, to, to intercede on our behalf. But Jesus saw that he answered wisely in verse 34. And he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
So this guy, it was working. You know, I kind of see him as, as kind of like Nicodemus was. You know, Nicodemus, it started, it started to, to, to make sense to him, and man, it started to get at his heart. And I think that's what was going on with the scribe, too. What happened to him further on, I don't know. Wish I could tell y'all. But that's one of the things that I'm going to ask, you know, when I get up there. What, whatever happened to that scribe? You know, he, he may have got saved. I don't know. But the, the, what I want y'all to see after that, hang on, I got lost a little bit. Okay. He kept testifying. So what had happened now was they came in there to question him. Right? The tables have turned now. Now he's in charge. He's the one questioning them. He had just cleansed the temple. Is that what Ryan preached about last week or the week before, cleansing of the temple? Anyone remember? Everybody's like, no, no, no. I don't remember what he preached. He was on, preached on sin. He was against it. Uh, guarantee he preached on that. But he kept testifying in verse 35. And this, this is, I get really excited in, in the very end of what we're, what we're talking about here. I'm not going over time. No, I'm not going over time. Jesus taught in the temple, verse 35, and he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Oh, he's getting in their minds now. Now he's getting in their minds. He's, he's, trying to, he, he's trying to get their minds all twisted up, you know, and what in the world's going on because the scribes, excuse me, and the Sadducees are the ones, like I said a minute ago, the scribes know the word, the Sadducees say there's no resurrection. So God goes, all right, we'll, we'll deal with the mind for a little bit. But Jesus said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself, verse 36, in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, and that's key, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself, David, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So what he's saying is, how can, he, how can he call someone that is of his lineage, born of flesh, how can he call him son? But yet, right here, he's calling him Lord. And when you study the original text, the original language, when David's saying in Hebrew, <clears throat> he's saying the Lord, he's saying Yahweh, Yahweh, which is the ultimate title that we know for God, for Almighty God. He's saying, Yahweh said to my Adonai. Adonai. Adonai is my Lord. My Lord and Savior. So how in the world can this happen if he is a flesh? How can this happen? It can't be. But in verse 38, and in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. What he's saying is, beware of the religious. Beware of the religious. Beware of those who tell you that salvation is because you said this prayer this certain way. You had to say it just like this now. You had to say it like the evangelist told you to say it. Or you're not saved. Or did, did you get baptized immediately after, or did you get baptized a couple of hours after? You know, those that teach that there's a method, there's some type of human method of salvation. I, personally, my, my granddaddy-in-law gave his testimony. He was the pastor of a church uh, for 35 years, 40 years, for Glen Haven Baptist Church in Decatur, Georgia. His testimony is this, I believe I was saved before I even stood up to walk down that aisle. 
He said, I believe Jesus came inside me and restored my soul right then and there. What I did after that, it didn't even matter. He said, I said, what, what did the message say? What was the message saying the day that you got saved? He said, I don't even remember. Because it doesn't matter. Because it was the Holy Spirit that was speaking into his heart. And it was Christ that saved him. It wasn't because of something he did. It wasn't because of some work that he did. It wasn't because he said a prayer a certain way. It wasn't because he had the date wrote down on the second page in his book that it, I was saved on this day at this time because I prayed this prayer. And, you know, that's not it. That's not it. Salvation is of God. It's the work of Christ. We have to submit, but it's the work of Christ. It's the work of Christ. And he's letting them know this. He's letting them know who he is. But he's also getting on to them for who they are. He's letting them know who they are. It's the same thing he does in our lives. And he continues to do. See, that's why there's a three-part in our salvation. That justification is justification, sanctification, glorification. That justification takes place the moment that we realize our need for Christ. And he says, this one's mine. He says, that woman's mine. That man's mine. That little girl's mine. That little boy's mine. The moment that that happens, the moment that we receive Christ, and the moment that we begin to follow Him, we are justified. See, the kingdom of God is in session right now. It's in session. God is the ultimate judge. Jesus is the one sitting at the right hand, interceding on our behalf. He's interceding for us right now. Do you realize the implications of that? Do you realize how important that is? Because we're standing before the Almighty God, the creator of all things, the great judge. And if we stood there in our own defense, it never happened. We'd bust the gates of hell wide open. He'd have probably killed us already. Because I, I know me personally, if, I like what John MacArthur said. If, if we could lose our salvation, we would. We would. I'd have lost it five minutes after I got it. I would have. I mean, there ain't no doubt I lost it five minutes after I got it. But Jesus is preaching this. He's preaching what the kingdom of God is all about. He's preaching it's not about you. It's not about the things you do. And I mean, these guys were very, very, very full of themselves. And it still happens today. But they were very full of themselves. But he kept on testifying. He kept on telling them who they were. But he, he was beginning to proclaim his authority and the fact that he was fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. He was and is the Messiah and God in the flesh. So he was beginning to tell them this. And, and here's the thing. They knew it. They, they knew the scriptures. Did they have the Bible in complete form like we have it now, Old and New Testament? No, they didn't. But they had the Torah, and they had the books of poetry, and they had the books of the prophets. They had those things. Now, the Sadducees didn't refer to anything but the Torah. But even... With just the Torah, they could have seen who the Messiah was. And they could have seen that this is him. He, did, he was born exactly like he was prophesied to be born. But now I want to go, well, I want to go ahead. 13, 1 and 2. We still got a little bit of time, don't we? Yeah. Verse 13. And all I want to read is verses 1 and 2. Because this goes right along with what he's saying. He said, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And Ryan will, I'm sure he's going to pick up on that when he comes back. He's prophesying. 
And the exact same thing that happened when Christ yelled up his spirit to his father, when it said the veil was torn, that was prophecy. 30, let's see, 33, 37, 43 years, 47 years, I guess, somewhere around there, after he died, after Christ died, after he ascended into heaven, that temple was torn down. That temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. Brick by brick, it was destroyed by the Romans. What that says is this right here. That religion, that religion of making these sacrifices, that religion of going to the high priest to intercede on your behalf, to go into the Holy Holies, that religion of sacrificing my best animal to God, that religion of doing these works, keeping the Torah, keeping the commandments, that religion was dead. It was dead. And what he's saying is, I'm the way. I am the way. Now, to say that those laws are dismissed, no. But Christ came and he fulfilled every one of those laws for us. That's what God required. He said, I require full fulfillment of the law. And Jesus spent 33 sinless years on this earth, fulfilled the spot-free lamb. He was a spot-free lamb because he did not sin. And he was sacrificed on our behalf. That's how we can all be saved. That's how we can all be saved. And he's proclaiming, Paul said to the Jew first, because the Jew had no, they had no excuse. They had the writings. The Gentile, the Greeks, they didn't have the writings. But the Jews, they had scripture, so they had no excuse. So that's the prophecy he's given. But going back, back to the parable of the tenants. Back to verses 1 through 12. I want to break this down for y'all. He said, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants, went into another country, and when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him, they beat him, they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. Who is he preaching to? Preaching to them. He's preaching this parable to those leaders. And he's describing it this way. Also, too, the way, when we get to the end of it, when it, in verse 12, when it says, They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived he had told the parable against them. How in the world did they know, he, did they know that he told the parable against them? Because in Isaiah chapter 5, see if this sounds familiar to you. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. O O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done? When When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. 
and the men of Judah are his pleasant planning. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. They knew that he was referring to Isaiah chapter 5 because they knew the book of the prophets. And they knew that he was addressing this to them. And they were mad. They were mad. They were already looking for a reason to get him. This right here was even more reason because he's speaking this parable directly to them. All they're waiting on is for him to just say, I'm God. If you ever have a Jehovah's Witness come to your house or a Mormon and someone like that that believes that Jesus is not God, really all you got to do is all you got to do is open the Bible. But all you got to do is show them this scripture right here. You show them, show them any scripture in the Bible, but this one right here is one of the ones that that proves that Jesus is God. That he is God because that's what it took, because that's the sacrifice it took. But when you look and you see what he says in that Psalm 118, when David says, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, Jesus was God. Jesus was God. But they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. So when we look at that, I'm going to find it. When we look at this, this parable, we see, number one, the owner of the vineyard was God, right? We see who everyone else was, but now, but now, I, that's what I, I got ahead right there. Uh, Matthew chapter 21 is the parallel to the same story. If y'all got a second to flip there real quick, Matthew chapter 21 is Matthew's account of this same story, but it's a little bit more descriptive when he asked them, All right, and when he, when he asked them, he said, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. See, their answer, Matthew got a little bit more descriptive of what their answer was, but their answer was against their own selves. And they realized that. And when they realized that, that's when they said they're seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. See, at this point... Thousands of people were following Christ. At this point, he had thousands of followers. So they were getting to the point now where they were scared. They were scared of what might happen to them. But they knew without a doubt that this parable was spoken against them. But now, now that that vineyard has been destroyed, we see that the owner was God the Father, the vineyard was Israel, the servants were the Old Testament prophets, the tenants were the Jewish leaders, and the son was Jesus. Those prophets, those ones that he sent, those ones that the owner kept sending back, they were killed, right? I could do not know what I did with this note. Hang on a second. Y'all bear with me one second. I lost it. All right, here we go. The prophets that they sent, the ones they sent to take care of that vineyard, the ones they sent, that God sent to go see what was going on, see if it had produced any grapes. Here's what happened. Just, just a few of them. Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah and Ezekiel by stoning. Micah rebuked King Ahab, and Ahab's son Joram killed him. Amos was severely tortured by Amaziah. Zechariah, son of Jehodiah, denounced King Jehoash and was immediately stoned to death. And this is just to name a few. This is just a few of the prophets that were killed. Why? Because they told the truth. 
Because they told the truth. They told the truth of the gospel. Did it stop? No, it didn't stop. Y'all remember Stephen? Acts chapter 7. What did he do? He gave truth. Now, he was a little bit more bold in his truth. I don't know how it would be if someone called me stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Um, Because that's what he said. Stephen didn't hold back anything. But he fits right into this, and he fits into a charge to us as Christians. Stephen was not called to be a pastor. Stephen wasn't even called to preach. Stephen was called to be a deacon. He was one of the first deacons. He was called to stay behind, and what it, what it said was to serve tables. So he was called to stay behind. So he would have been just like a, a deacon or an elder you know, here at Church 213. But he stepped out of his comfort zone, and he saw all these people, and he proclaimed to them truth. He proclaimed to them truth. What that's saying is this. Each and every one of us, once we are saved, we have to tell others about Christ. We have no excuse. We have no excuse to tell others about Christ, to not tell others about Christ. I hear people say all the time, well, I'm not an ordained minister. I'm not a preacher. I just can't tell people about Jesus. I I don't know enough about the Scriptures. We can't be that way. When God calls us unto salvation, He calls us to spread the Word, to seek and to save, to seek and He'll save that which was lost. I like the way Vody Bauckham puts it. You know, he says, you don't have to have some fluffed up testimony to lead someone to Christ. I can't put it as good as he does. He just, I don't know how many of y'all listen to him, but he is a powerful, uh, powerful voice for Christ. But what he says, he says this. He said, you know, you'll, he was talking about, he said one guy, he said, you'll, you'll run across one guy that was in elementary school and got in one fight 20 years later. Man, I fought every day. And then you run to the next guy, took a sip of whiskey when he was 20 years old. Man, I got drunk every day after school, you know, fluff up these testimonies. Here's the deal. You may be the person that was the drunk, was the drug addict, whatever it may be, and God brought you out of that, and if he did, praise God for it. But you may be also be that one that was a, a pastor's child or a deacon's child, a minister's child. That never really got into much. Here's the deal. You were just as dead in your sin as that other person is. If we're without Christ, which every one of us is born to this world without Christ, we're dead in our sin. So what, what Bodie Balkan was saying is this. Our testimony should be this. Our testimony should be that God came to earth, wrapped himself in flesh, died on a tree, had my sin nailed to, died, and ascended into heaven, and he's there right now making intercession for me on my behalf, and will continue to do so until he completes my salvation. That's all of our testimony. And the testimony we share the gospel, we don't have to share some inflated story of ourselves or some inflated story of our life. We share Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves people, not us. That's what does the work. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. We share the gospel with people. Don't ever, don't ever catch yourself saying, I just don't have a testimony. I don't have a story. If you're saved, yes, you do. And that story and that testimony is Jesus. That is the testimony. That's the testimony for all of us. So we look at this, at this vineyard. And I don't know, how, how many of y'all been been to a vineyard, uh, a winery? 
When I said a winery, y'all are all like, I went one time. It's okay if you've been to a winery. Wineries are beautiful. Man, they're gorgeous. The only reason I've been to one is because I trimmed the house in, inside of the Chateau Alain up there one time. So, you know. But they're gorgeous. Man, they're beautiful. And this whole area, this whole area at this time, this was a major, uh, a major business. Winemaking was a major business, along with olive oil making was a major business. So I can only imagine how beautiful it was. But they say, I, I haven't been, how many of y'all have been to the Holy Lands? Anybody? Nobody. And, and when I say Holy Land, oh yeah, my mother has. That's right, you did go. I saw a picture of you on a camel. Was it, sm- was it smooth or was it rough? Yeah, humpback, okay. But they say that you can go there and you can still see the terrace, terrace land where they used to have these vineyards. Yeah, any of y'all guys that, that are hunters, or girls, sorry, girls too. I know, my daughter's one. Y'all ever been walking through the woods and you'll see this a hillside and you'll see it terraced up, you know? Trees are growing there now. At one time or another, it was, pro- it was probably cotton, most likely. But there was, there was some type of crop there. It wasn't always trees. But that's the way it is when you go into this area. But the reason I say that is because that vineyard is beautiful. That's what God wants to see. You know, we're his vineyard. And he wants, to see, he wants to see the beauty in us. And the way is that is we see the beauty in us. You know, we have to work together. The body of Christ is, I like to call myself the pinky toe. You know, some of us are the head. Some of us are the hand. Some of us are the muscle. I'm the pinky toe. I'm just the one, you know, I'm just kind of tagging along. But if you lose your pinky toe, you won't be able to stand up straight. You'll lose your balance, all right? So y'all need me in some form or fashion. But find out, what, find out what your calling is in the body of Christ. Find out who you are, who you're supposed to be, and go out and spread the gospel. That's one of the ways we know we're Christians. Like I said earlier, we don't know we're a Christian because we wrote a date in our Bible. We don't know we're a Christian because we said a prayer. We know we're a Christian by what the Scripture says about us. The best, the best that I can tell you all to go to and examine yourself is 1 John. Go to 1 John, read the, entire, read the entire book, 1 John, and you'll be able to examine yourself. It'll tell you where you're at. It'll tell you if you're in the faith or not. Will you slip? Absolutely. I'm probably the worst one in this room. But God drew me back. He drew me back every time. That's why he sustains our salvation. We don't. Man, if we did, good grief. It, it, it'd be rough. And I know I talked about that just a little bit ago, but sustaining it, I just, I couldn't imagine, you know. I couldn't imagine being like the religious that, that do uh, go by works. And it's a shame, too, because if you do look at it by works, you will be in hell. There is no doubt. But he's getting ready. He, he's getting ready to let them know plainly and clearly that he is God in the flesh. Um, the very reason that Jesus was put on the cross, besides the fact that God ordained it and it was prophesied, was because he claimed his deity. Once he claimed his deity, they said, that's it. That's enough. Blasphemy. He tore their clothes, had them arrested. That's, when they put, that's what put him on the cross. So, examine yourselves. See where you are in the faith. You know, what testimony are you giving to those that you're around each and every day? If you hear someone or you see someone that you come across and you know they're lost, you sharing Christ with them? 
or you just asking them where they go to church. That's a good way to lead into it. You know, where do you go to church? I mean, that's definitely a good way to lead in the conversation. But we're to have a burden for the lost, but just as much we're to have a burden for those that Christ died for, for him to receive those that he died for. And the way that happens, somebody preached to y'all. It may happen here, it may happen at home, it may happen riding down the road. That's all right, but it was communicated to you in some form or fashion, whether it was spoken, whether it was sung, or whether you read it. It was communicated to you. We've got to be those communicators. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you did destroy that temple, Lord. Lord, that the Holy of Holies is now in heaven. It's now there. And Lord, it's wherever we go, we can bow before you. We don't have to make that trip all the way to Jerusalem to go inside the Holy of Holies, Lord. All we got to do, whether it's outside, whether it's in here, no matter where it's at, we have access to the throne of God. And Lord, we just praise your name for that today. And Father, I pray that if there's anybody in here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, don't let them leave the same. I pray your Holy Spirit be working with them even now. And Lord, I, I just pray that today would be their day of salvation. If there's people in here, if there's people in here that, Lord, are not spreading the gospel the way that they should be, I pray you would convict them, and I pray that you would use them. Thank you for this time. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless this invitation time. In Jesus' name, amen. If everyone will stand. If, if, if you're in here this morning, I'll be down front. Um, and number one, you're not saved. That, that if you died when you pulled out of here, you know you wouldn't meet Jesus based on his word. Man, I don't want to see you live the same way. But I, I can't save you, but, but I, I can tell you about who can save you. And if you're in here this morning... And you say, you know what, I, I am a follower of Christ, but I just hadn't, I haven't been sharing like I should be. Um, pray for me. Then I'll be here. But the altars are open if you want to come pray, whatever. You want to come talk to me, whatever it may be, the altars are open, the musicians will play.